0: you. My name is Elizabeth Dale and I am a Cornish writer, blogger, sometimes podcaster that has a slight obsession with Cornish history and those of you who have been here before and listened to my podcast before will already know that and thank you so much for coming back and those of you that are new here, I really hope you enjoy it. Let, let me know what you think. So I hope you're all having a really good day I'm having one of those weeks where I'm trying really hard but things just don't quite seem to be working out. So let's hope this podcast turns out okay. I'm looking forward to your feedback at the end. What we're going to talk about today is partly um, a village that I'm very fond of, and partly a tale of shipwreck and survival. So I hope you're you're going to enjoy it. Let's let's crack on. So the village of Flushing. Um, is not far from where I was born and grew up. And I have to say, it's one of my favourite little places to go. There's some really lovely walks in the area. And for those of you that, that don't know Cornwall so well, Flushing is a little village just across the water from Falmouth and its original Cornish name was Nankerzi, which roughly translates as either the winding valley or the valley with a reedy swamp. Now, the name Flushing um, dates from the 17th century, and it was given to the village in honour of a group of Dutch engineers that arrived in Nankerzi around that time, and they left their mark on the shape of the village, and they also gave it its new name. The men were from Vlissingen, which is a port town in the Netherlands, and it's believed that Flushing is a corruption of that Dutch name. Now, these European engineers were brought over by local landowners to improve the seawalls in Flushing, to build new piers and to try and reclaim some of that reedy, swampy land in and around the village. Now the Dutch, of course, are still famed for their ability to reclaim land. In fact, today roughly 17% of the total land area of the Netherlands is reclaimed and about 65% of the whole country would actually be underwater at high tide if it wasn't for the country's system of dikes and dunes and pumps. So the work that these foreign engineers did in flushing was not quite so dramatic as all of that, but it was still pretty impressive and as I said it completely changed the face of flushing and it's not really common knowledge that that actually happened. So apparently after draining the reed beds they built the lower part of the town that, they, that we can see today up on faggots And so much of the waterfront in Flushing, the area sort of from the Seven Stars back to where Flushing School is up Coventry Road, is actually all reclaimed land. They also um, engineered the piers which are still there still in use hundreds of years later and during construction the Dutch actually laid the stones of the piers vertically rather than horizontally because this allows the sea to seep in and out of the walls without causing damage even in really rough conditions. And another little clue to that Dutch influence is the delft tiles that you can spot on some of the walls in the houses in Flushing these blue and white tiles are just this little nod to that Dutch past which I just think is really fascinating because I don't think it's something that many people are aware of. Now talking of the houses in Flushing that's one of my favourite things about the village is these beautiful elegant houses that you have all along the waterfront there and of course these were built for the packet ship owners and the packet ship captains that used to use flushing as their base. You see, for over 200 years, the packet ship service was part of daily life in and around Falmouth. These were the fast ships that carried mail and passengers all over the globe, And the Cornish newspapers would carry stories of these ships, their departures, their arrivals, the passengers that were embarking, or any adventures or mishaps that might have happened while they were out at sea. This era, particularly, was an exciting time for flushing. And there's this really lovely quote about the village at that time, which says, The streets of the village sparkled with the epaulets, the gold-laced hats and brilliant uniforms and it must have been a really vibrant place to live at that time which kind of brings us around to our story today. So during the age of the packet ships there were at least 10 pubs in Flushing. The Jolly Sailor, the Cutter Inn, the Royal Standard, Seven Stars, the Ship, the Three Tons, the Anchor, the Globe, the Royal Oak and the Lady Hobart, as well as numerous beer houses that at that time were known as Kidleywinks, One pub, the Lady Hobart, had a landlord called William Tregidgo, who had a very particular reason for the unusual name of his establishment. It was the name of the ship on which he had been shipwrecked. Now in 1803 William Trigidgo was a crewman on a packet ship called the Lady Hobart which was under the command of William Dorset Fellows who lived on St Peter's Hill in Flushing. Now the Fellows family were originally from Somerset but William Dorset Fellows was actually born at sea in 1769 on a ship called the Dorsetshire, which is where he got his middle name. And he was a very experienced sailor who after serving in the British Navy had worked for the East India Company, sailing ships all over the world for around 20 years before joining the packet service in December 1800 at the age of 31. The Lady Hobart was his first packet ship. And she sailed the transatlantic route from Falmouth to Halifax in Canada. Now, the Lady Hobart um, had been built in Liverpool in 1799. But on the 22nd of June, 1803, she left from Halifax, Nova Scotia, bound for Falmouth. And on this particular journey, she also had Captain Fellow's wife, Julia, on board. A few days after leaving port on the 26th of June the Lady Hobart was attacked by a French schooner. Now England as you well know was constantly at war with France in the 18th and 19th century or it feels like they were constantly at war with France and it seems that this French ship mistook the Lady Hobart for an unarmed merchant vessel. Now, Fellows and his crew were able to do battle with the attackers and they actually won and took control of the French ship. The Lady Hobart actually had two Royal Naval Lieutenants on board as passengers and Fellows was able to arrange for them and a sort of ragtag crew to sail that French ship back to England as as a sort of a prize while the French prisoners were kind of offloaded onto a passing English ship and sent back to Newfoundland, all except the French captain who stayed on board the Lady Hobart. Now, although the Lady Hobart had won the battle and captured the enemy ship, Fellows was really keen to avoid any further confrontation. So he made a decision to take a more northerly route than he usually would. And it was this choice that really sealed their fate. On the 28th of June, so six days after setting sail, at about one o'clock in the morning, the ship struck an iceberg with such force that the crew were flung from their hammocks and apparently her cannons were thrown overboard. Captain Fellows later described those first moments after hitting the iceberg and I'm going to read his quote here. Being roused out of my sleep by the suddenness of the shock, I instantly ran up upon deck. The helm had been put hard aport and the ship struck again, her stern being stove in and her rudder carried away before we could su- succeed in our attempts to haul her off. At this time, the island of ice seemed to hang over the ship, forming a high peak that was twice the height of our masthead. We suppose that the length of the island to have been from a quarter to a half a mile, the sea was breaking over the ice in a dreadful manner. The water was rushing in so fast as to fill the hold in minutes, End quote. So in a desperate attempt to save the ship, they threw anything of any weight overboard, including cutting away the anchors. And then they did something that I have never heard of before. Um, apparently, they slung two sails beneath the hull, and then pulled them up tight in an attempt to stem the flow of water. But this didn't work. And despite this, um, the best efforts of the crew with pumps and buckets within 15 minutes, it was really clear that the ship was sinking. Fellows told the inquiry that came afterwards that he had been determined to save the mail bags, but it was quickly decided by him and his master's mate, a man called Samuel Bargus, that there was just not enough room in the two small lifeboats that they had for all the bags and the crews and the passengers and so they decided that the people had to come first. They attached weights to the mail bags and threw them overboard so that they would sink and therefore not fall into enemy hands and then they started to evacuate the the passengers and the crew. I think it is an interesting fact actually that the last thing that the packet captains were instructed to do if they were attacked and had to surrender was to sink the mail. They were so intent that these letters, these documents didn't fall into enemy hands. Anyway after they had done this they turned their attention to the 29 people who were on board including that captured French captain and all these people were offloaded and crammed into a small cutter and what they called a jolly boat which was actually a name for a small wooden boat that was attached to the stern of the ship and fellows reported the situation like this and I quote in the cutter, which was 20 feet long, were embarked three ladies and myself, Captain Richard Thomas of the Navy, the French commander, the master's mate, the gunner, steward, carpenter and eight seamen, in all 18 people, which together with the provisions brought the boat's gunwale down to six or seven inches above the water. Some idea may be formed of our confined state, but it is scarcely possible for the imagination to conceive of our suffering as a consequence of it in the jolly boat, which was fourteen foot from stem to stern, were embarked Mr. Samuel Bargus, Lieutenant Colonel George Cook of the First Regiment of Guards, the boatswain, the sailmaker, and seven seamen, so in all eleven persons and that's end quote. The only provisions that they were able to save from the sinking Lady Hobart were 40 pounds of biscuits, one demijohn containing five gallons or 22 litres of water, a small barrel of beer, a bottle of rum and some bottles of wine, two compasses, a spyglass and a tin cup. They also had a lantern with some candles and a tinderbox. As the Lady Hobart sank beneath the water, the 29 people in their two small boats were an estimated 350 miles from the nearest land, which was Newfoundland, and it was freezing conditions. Fellows spoke to the crew and passengers and they all agreed that they had a long and difficult journey ahead of them so that they had to be very careful with the limited provisions that they had. It was agreed that they would have half a biscuit and a glass of wine only each day and that they would save the water until last. They experienced gale force winds and heavy seas and spent much of their time really just trying to keep these little boats afloat. Luckily, the carpenter had actually had the presence of mind to bring his tools with him. The cutter did have a little sail, so they tied the two boats together and made progress that way as well as rowing uh, and just started heading for Newfoundland, 350 miles away as best they could. As the days went by, things became more and more desperate. Apparently, they they frequently mistook fog banks on the horizon for land and um, passed several other huge icebergs. And on one occasion, they thought that they heard like distant gunfire, which actually turned out to be whales blowing water out of their spouts. Now, some reports suggest that they actually ran out of water and had to resort to drinking seawater, which may explain the strange actions of the French captain. On the sixth day he apparently became completely delirious, uh, completely irrational and he actually jumped overboard and was drowned. But he fortunately was the only casualty because salvation was not far away. At last, after seven days afloat, they reached Conception Bay in Newfoundland on the 4th of July, 1803. And according to the account by Captain Fellows in the newspapers, which was printed in August 1803, it was under their own steam, so to speak. His account basically says that they sailed into the harbour. Though there are some later reports that they were rescued by a passing vessel or perhaps guided to land by a passing vessel. Anyway back in Flushing friends and relatives of the passenger and crew were were growing more and more concerned. Word had reached them about um, the attack on on the Lady Hobart by another ship and in early August the, the local newspapers, the Cornish papers, were lamenting you know these grave concerns that the ship had not arrived in Falmouth and that she was three weeks overdue. And then on the 5th of August The news arrived that although the Lady Hobart had been lost, all the crew and passengers were safe. Now back in Canada, the survivors were recovering. Some of the crew are said to have lost fingers and toes to frostbite. But fortunately, everyone but that poor captured French captain they, they they did survive there is a letter from a lady passenger we don't know exactly who um, that was printed in the newspapers and she describes the, the fear and the hardship that they endured she writes we had the melancholy prospect of being either starved or sinking as our boats were loaded to the water's edge and we were 400 miles from any land after seven days and nights, during which time we were only allowed half a biscuit and a glass of wine a day, we made the island of Newfoundland and at the same time saw a fishing boat which took us to a small fishing cove where the people came down to the boats and carried us to our hou- their houses. Few were able to walk one or two more days and I think we would all have been dead. Most people were delirious. The captain was out of his mind for two days and one man jumped overboard quite mad. Two ladies lost their senses the third day and I thank the Almighty that I preserved mine which enabled me to take care of others. Captain Fellows actually printed an account of the shipwreck a few weeks after they returned home. And in it, he wrote about their feelings on seeing land after seven days. He said, The joy of speedy relief affected us all in the most remarkable way. Many burst into tears. Some looked at each other with a stupid stare as if doubtful of the reality of what they saw. Several were in a lethargic state, that no consolation, no animated language could rouse them to exertion. Now eventually all the passengers and crew, they made their way back to England and William Tregidgo, he returned to Cornwall and married a woman called Julia Organ. Together they had eight children in Flushing and he eventually retired from the sea to open his pub that he named the Lady Hobart after the lost packet ship and the ordeal really that he probably never forgot. Now Tregidgo died in 1857 at the age of 73 and was buried in Myler Churchyard where you can still see his headstone to this day. William Dorset Fellows went on to have an illustrious career. He was actually promoted after his return to England despite losing his ship. But I think it's worth noting that he also wrote later in life, that the only reason he believed that they survived their ordeal in those freezing conditions in those Arctic waters was because of the discipline and the bravery of his crew. And that's the end of the story of the Lady Hobart. I really hope you've enjoyed it and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. And I think that it's a weird coincidence that as I am recording this in March 2022, literally yesterday, it was announced that they have found the wreck of the Endurance Shackleton's ship that sank in 1915 in the Antarctic, and it was just incredible to see the photographs of that beautifully preserved ship. And it just got me thinking, you know, does the Lady Hobart still exist somewhere at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean? And wouldn't it be incredible if we could find her too? Though I'm not really sure there would be much funding for that. Anyway, just a thought. So, if you've enjoyed this story um, and you want another shipwreck fix, um, I did record an episode a while back about Thomas Proctor Ching and his adventures on Skull Island, but I will warn you, it's not quite such a happy outcome as this particular story. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining me. Please do leave me a comment. Please do share and subscribe and all that stuff. I would really love it if you would do that for me Um, it would be incredible and thank you as always thank you so much for listening it really really does mean a lot to me to get any feedback that you have about these episodes because you know I'm sitting here in a room on my own talking into a microphone (laughs) it's just nice to know that somebody's listening anyway thanks so much and I will speak to you again soon bye